voice. This is the face with that voice. Um, sorry to disappoint you. Uh, I did have a beard. Uh, my daughter got lice, and it made its way to me. So uh, that happened right before man camp, and I did not feel very manly going to camp with a freshly shaven face. I couldn't, I couldn't have bought cigarettes. I mean, I looked like I was a teenager. It was really bad. Okay, not that I smoke, but I mean, even if I did, I couldn't have bought them. Okay. Whew. You're welcome. <laughs> so the title of today's message is The Best Wine in Overabundance. I figure, man, if I'm at a Baptist church and the pastor's away, I'm going to kick up some dirt for him to deal with when he gets back. So let's talk about alcohol. Um, I mean, Baptists are notoriously teetotalers, right? At least in public. Um, I'm just kidding. I'm, I'm really kidding. Um, we will talk about wine uh, and its biblical meaning and the significance Jesus pointed to, but we're not doing anything else. Anything else. So um, take a deep breath. Thank you. Well, have you been in the place? Have you been in the place where your joy has run dry? Maybe it's a season of life where you've felt depleted. When all your resources, physical, mental, emotional, spiritual, have, have run out. And this depletion has such an effect on your soul, that even the things that should be joyous, they seem colorless, humdrum, mundane. But this depletion, it it doesn't grant you respite, doesn't it? It doesn't grant you respite from your responsibilities. We have to keep moving, and, and thus we often try to mask our disappointment and sorrow and paint on a smile and Keep marching on. I recall a time with my wife. Where she described life was like heading into a dark tunnel. She wasn't sure there was an opening on the other side. It seemed... It seemed so insurmountable, the situation so unchangeable, that the hope was gone. And all joy had run dry. Have you been there? Have you been there? So I want to begin this morning, and I want to assure you, I want to assure you that the Gospel speaks to life in these moments. Paul in 2 Corinthians 2 wrote this, For we don't want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we have experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. Paul, the apostle, the apostle had seen his joy, his strength, his physical resources run dry to the point of despairing life itself. That's real life, isn't it? That's real life. Paul continued like this. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. 
He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and He will deliver us. On Him we have set our hope that He will deliver us again. You see, the Gospel isn't a happy-go-lucky mantra that we repeat as an escapism from real pain and sorrow, right? The Gospel is the truth that God gives meaning to our pain. He brings hope and life in the midst of it and a promised deliverance. So this morning, I want you to know, you who are depleted and dry, that I, I, as I preach to you, I, I preach to myself. I really do. Um, it's just last night at the dinner table, my eight-year-old daughter turns to me and she says, Daddy, you look sad. And I just, this is one of those moments, moms and dads, where I didn't know what to say. I didn't know what to say. So I changed the subject and I made fun of something. <laughs> so would you with me this morning put your hope in and rely on God to give us life. To deliver us now as He has before. The setting of our passage today is a, it's a wedding celebration. A wedding celebration 2,000 years ago. We're going to turn to the book of John chapter 2. Go ahead and grab your Bibles and open to John chapter 2 if you would. We'll stand and read in just a moment. John intentionally recorded specific miracles and teachings of Jesus. John was very deliberate in the things that he wrote about. And he did this. His stated purpose of the book was to bear witness to the glory of Jesus as the Son of God. And he did this so that we might read and believe and have fellowship with one another. So as we look at the passage today, we must not view it as an isolated incident, as a mere bullet point into the pros and cons of believing Jesus is the Son of God. Instead, we must see that John was weaving a thread through his Gospel that told a greater story. And one, friends, one that you and I are included in. Do you get that? You and I are included in the story of the history of the redemption of mankind. So we're going to view the passage under the following headings. My wife, she's, she's a great coach. Okay, my wife is like a master educator. And when she like, gives me sermon feedback, one of the things she says is always tell them where you're going. So I'm going to tell you where I'm going. And then she says, don't put your hands in your pockets. And my son literally counts how many times I put my hands in my pockets. He's so eager to tell me that before I step down off, like on the first step, he's like, Dad, that was six. You only did six that time. So if one of you wants to count how many times I put my hands in my pockets, that'd be really helpful. I beat my record, son. I beat my record. Uh, the first title, or the first heading is The Sign of Significance. The second is the joy of the wedding. The third, when joy runs dry. The ambiguous conversation. A hidden miracle. The best wine for last. Let's scandalize the Baptists in here. And then lastly, the great wedding feast. So if you would, in honor of God's Word, would you take your... Bible or your smartphone or whatever devices you might have, and let's stand in honor of the inspired Word of God.
I hear that. John chapter 2. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. You may be seated. Would you let me pray? Father, this is Your Word. Lord, and as those who come under You, King Jesus, we want to bend. We want to submit. We want to learn. We want to drink from Your Word. So we ask that You fill us this morning. Lord, I ask that You guard my mouth. That You guard that which I would say. Lord, that only what is true of you would come forth. Lord, I ask that you guard those who are here, guard the ears of those who are here. Lord, that if I say anything that is not of you, that is not true, Father, if if it even comes to their understanding in a way that doesn't accurately represent who you are, would you protect them from that? But Lord, if what I say is true, If what is spoken is your word, Lord, would you do surgery on this soul? May it penetrate the heart. May it give life, Lord. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's good practice, isn't it, to start with the end in mind. Um, Here's another unique thing. My wife always, when we're watching a movie, she goes and she Googles and she looks at the end, like how it all plays out, right? Right? I don't get that, but it it works really well with sermons. Uh, I want to tell you where we're going. Um, In fact, we're going to start with the end of mine and look at verse 11. So as we interpret things, we're going to use verse 11 as the grid by which we are looking at this passage. So, verse 11, and the heading is the sign of significance. So verse 11 reads this, the first of His signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested His glory. And his disciples believed in him. So verse 11 tells the readers that this was Jesus' first sign. 
John recorded seven signs in his gospel. He doesn't call it a miracle, but he calls it a sign. Friends, what does a sign do? It points, right? A sign points you to something. It points you to something greater. It points you to a greater significance. So John downplayed the turning of water into wine for something more important. You have to gather that. That John chapter 2 is not primarily about Jesus making more wine. It's pointing to something much bigger and better. So what did John say that the purpose of this miracle was? That Jesus would manifest. That Jesus would manifest His glory and thus His disciples believed Him. So this statement is the key by which the rest of the passage unlocks. Consider it the proper lens from which when we peer through it, we will see and comprehend the whole map. So to understand this passage, we must understand that John was aiming to communicate the glory of God, the glory of Jesus. And of course, you folks are taught well here at TBC. Expository preaching is what happens from this pulpit. So you understand that when you look at a passage, you want to understand the context. You want to understand the cultural significance. You want to understand and know how the people of the day perceived and understood what was really happening, right? So we look at verse 1 and 2. This is the joy of the wedding, verse 1 and 2. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited into the wedding with his disciples. So what's the significance of a wedding? Two people getting married, right? It's a celebration, right? And it is, I would say, one of the greatest earthly celebrations we have. Why? Well, it's a celebration of the beginning of an intimate friendship, an intimate relationship where two people come together, they commit each other, they commit themselves to each other to fully know and to fully love one another. There's no greater earthly joy that we are given than this, to know and to be known, to love and to be loved. And this, this is wedding in John 2 has all the makings of a great celebration, doesn't it? The guest list was large. The preparations were many. The servants were on hand. The master of the feast was like the wedding coordinator, I'm pretty sure. He had a little microphone, you know. No? Okay. Uh, the, they had a wedding coordinator, I mean a master of feast. Uh, there was additional help. I mean, there was moms on hand. Mary was kind of directing traffic behind the scene. That's why she went to Jesus. I mean, there's a, there's a lot going on here, and there's a lot of hands making this thing work. It was a large party, so large that Jesus, this newly minted rabbi, had time or had the ability to bring his disciples, all 12 of them. That's a big wedding. I mean, and they had room for them. They had room for the party crashers, right? So what happens at these weddings, these Jewish weddings, they last an entire week. Friends, an entire week of partying. Like, what does that tell you about how we're supposed to celebrate marriage? An entire week. And the groom would show his honor. Friends, the groom would show his glory in his provision for the wedding. It was his duty to provide for the party. If it was well supplied, well put together, that was to his glory. If the provisions ran short, that reflected on the groom. 
which also indicated something to the bride. It would be a great dishonor if there were a shortfall of wine. It would mean embarrassment for the groom, and it would muddy the joy of the bride. It might suggest to her that she wasn't really worth the money that he would spend necessary for the provisions for the party. And it would be, a, friends, it would be a very public declaration of an insufficient love for his new bride. Just a shame. A shame which no bride could handle on her wedding day. And so what do we read? We read that the wine ran out. Why wine? Why is that important? Well, wine had a special significance in the Jewish culture. It was a symbol for joy. Wine was a symbol for joy. In fact, the rabbis say, there is no rejoicing save wine. Baptist, are you okay with me? It's biblical. There is no rejoicing save wine. In other words, if there's no wine, there's no joy. There's no wine, there's no joy. And this is consistent in the Bible. In fact, the Bible equates wine to joy. Psalm 104, You cause the grass to grow and plants for man to cultivate that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to do what? To gladden the heart of man. If there's no wine, there's no joy. But in verse 3, what we read is that the wine had run out. The wine had run out. So what do you do? What do you do when the wine runs out? What do you do when joy runs dry? Joy can run dry for all of us, can't it? Is anyone here immune? And where do we find it when it's gone? See, joy is an intangible that can't be bought or supplemented. It's not something we gain by consumption. Vacations, beach house, cruise ships, experiences, food. If it were, then why would it be that someone who has all the provisions in the world, all the opportunity for pleasure in the world, all the reason for happiness in the world, be it fame or money or power, would still find their joy has run dry. Think of Hollywood. Think of Hollywood. Friends, one of what I thought was one of the most funniest, joyful persons in the last few years took his life. He had everything that the world would think would provide for happiness. And, and yet, and yet, his life ended in a tragic pursuit that left him numb. Jim, Jim Cavazil. Jim played the Apostle Paul in, in the movie. He's a, he's a Christian in Hollywood. When asked in a Faithwire interview what it's like to be a Christian working in Hollywood, the actor replied with these staggering, powerful words. It's like water all around you and nothing to drink. You know if you go out to the ocean and you drink salt water, you'll die. So ultimately, all the world has to offer, all the provisions it can afford, is a short-lived joy. It will not quench your thirst, friends. Like salt water, you, you will drink it, it will drain your life, it will dry you up, and you'll die. 
your soul would die. What looks like death, sorry, what looks like life is death. Water is soul. And I believe this is part of what John was communicating. With the wine appeared to run out on day one, the joy of this wedding feast was short-lived. And could this tragically be symbolic for some of us? When we, look, when we look at Scripture, we need to look in the mirror, don't we? Sometimes the wine of marriage seems short-lived. Sometimes, in all our efforts to be filled, we drain others. When the tap is dry and our wine glass falls to the floor, and it breaks and it shatters, what, what do we do? Friends, we don't even know how the pieces can be swept up, let alone the glass restored. It would take a miracle of God. Have any of you been there? Have you been there? The wine can run out in our families. The wine can run out in our community. It can do so in our church when relationships cool. And if we let pride and sin reside, those relationships sour. In our spiritual life, the wine can run dry. We busy ourselves with things that don't fill us. So in our passage, the wine had run out. Joy was about to do the same. But we have a special seat at this wedding. We sit with John. We sat with Jesus. He heard this ambiguous conversation between Jesus and His mother. Let's listen in on it. Look at verse 3. When their wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. First, we need to recognize that Mary went to the right place. Right? Mary went to Jesus. The only one there that could have done anything about it. Friends, joy comes from a person. Now, she didn't fully grasp the whom or the what, but Jesus had divine insight. He must have rightly read his mother's intentions, her tone of voice, and all the things that we don't know or see. She was expecting him to do something. What was she expecting? Something miraculous? Well, that's possible, isn't it? She had an angel come and announce to her, oh, you're going to be pregnant. Huh? She had angels come and sing over his birth. She had shepherds and wise men travel from afar to worship her two-year-old boy. She's seen a thing or two. She raised this man. Look, no other miracles are recorded, but if Jesus was the Son of God, she had to see a thing or two. So here she is. She's expecting something. It's within the scope of possibility. Friends, she wasn't asking Jesus to do a quick beer run back to Nazareth. That's an eight-mile round trip. Besides, this is wine for a wedding feast. 
You can't get that kind of wine in such great quantity on such a short notice. So what was she thinking? Maybe now. Maybe now it's time. Maybe now it's time for Jesus to, to reveal who He is as the Messiah. What if He performed a great miracle here for all these people to see? Maybe now with His new, newly minted band of disciples, her son can take the spotlight. She can be a proud mom. That's my boy. And in her voice was this sense of urgency. The wine has run out. It's time. It's time, Jesus. Come on. But his response was something different, wasn't it? Would you have expected his response? Moms, would you want your son to talk to you that way? What, woman? What does this have to do with me? Now, of course, that's the way we read it. Jesus was the perfect Son of God. He did not disrespect His mother. But the statement did distance Him from her. What was He doing? Was He performing the 21st century ritual of hashtag adulting? When children differentiate themselves from their parents and establish their own agenda, their own goals, I'll do what I want, when I want, how I want. Thank you very much, Mom and Dad. If I would have wanted your opinion, I would have given it to you. It's not what Jesus was doing. He was not disrespectful or ungrateful, but he was, and he did reprove his mother. In fact, you see this other places in the gospel. But in this moment, what was Jesus saying? What was his reproof to Mary? His response was to let Mary know that he is on a direct mission from the Father. He did nothing outside the purview of the Father. What he did, all his actions, were a demonstration of his kingship, his messianic identity, and he took direction only from the Father. Jesus was the obedient Son, but his first obedience was to God the Father. His statement, my hour has not yet come, revealed to us how he intended to be glorified. Do you get that? The way Jesus wanted to be glorified. You see, the hour of His glorification wasn't making wine at a wedding. It was dying on a cross. We read this at a John. Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. John 17, the night he was arrested, he prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. His hour, the hour he was glorified, was the hour of his death. And Mary, what is he saying to Mary? Mary, you want me to be revealed? Mary, you want me to be glorified? I will be glorified at the Father's appointed time, not yours or anyone else. I do not lower my aim to meet the expectation of man. Instead, I lift your head, I lift your eyes to see the glory, the aim of God. We have to see the shift in conversation. There's a shift in the conversation. Do you see it? In verse 5, his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Was Mary undeterred? 
Did Jesus' reproof fly over her head? Was she just completely ignorant of what he was saying? Or was there a change in tone? And a response, a submission to the will of Jesus. See, I believe that Mary in this moment remembered, oh yeah, he's the Son of God. And I believe that she submitted herself to trust that he will do what he will do and it will be best. He will do what He will do, and it will be best. What was ironic is that Jesus asked, what does this have to do with me? And then He acted. Isn't that ironic? Woman, what does this have to do with me? And then He actually honored her request. He did something. It was as if He was saying, if I'm to do something, it will have to do with me. You want wine, mom? You want earthly joy? This is nothing. I don't want to give you wine. I want to give you more than that. I want to show you the Father. I want to make Him seen and known. I want to teach you about myself. Let's turn the tables here and ask the question again. But let me ask it. What does this have to do with me, mom? Everything. Everything. And what we see is a hidden miracle. This is verse 6 through 8. And I want to identify a few key items in what Jesus was revealing as he used them. There were six stone water jars, each held 20 to 30 gallons. Their purpose was for the Jewish rite of purification. So, in order to enter a wedding feast, in order to come into the celebration, you have to be purified. You have to go through this washing ritual in which your hands and your feet are cleansed. And if you don't wash, you don't enter. Isn't it interesting that that's what Jesus chose to use to turn water into wine? These pots used for the cleansing of those who would enter the wedding feast. And he would turn it into wine, a symbol of joy. I may be stretching the metaphor, but I think it's true. People who recognize they were once unclean sinners whom have and continue to courageously and honestly recognize their need. These people who have now been made clean these people have been seasoned and fermented with such grace that they are now the most richest, most joyful, most delightful, most deeply joyful people I know. From the washing water, Jesus produced the best wine. A symbol of joy. So we had the servants fill the jars with water. They were already depleted. Friends, these jars were depleted. He had filled them to the brim. And if we do the math, that's 180 gallons of wine. That's 907 bottles of wine. That's way more than the wedding party could possibly consume in a week. 
His friends, when Jesus brings wine, he brings it in overabundance. When Jesus brings joy, he brings it in overabundance. And this is so like God, isn't it? I think of Ephesians 3 2. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we could ever ask or think. And Mary knew that Jesus was the only one who could restore joy to this wedding feast. She asked Jesus to do something, but she couldn't have imagined he would make 180 gallons of the best wine. And he saved the best wine for last. Look at verse 8. And he said to him, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, he did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water, they knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. So we said this. Jesus' statement that my hour has not yet come was evidenced in that he kept the miracle hidden, didn't he? Mom's desire for him to shine publicly would not dictate his action. Further, what might be more applicable to you and I, friends, what might be more applicable to you and I is that sometimes the miracles of God happen in private. These miracles are far too sacred, healing, life-giving, joy-giving than what He might do for you in the public eye, in the here and now. Sometimes the miracle we truly need happens in the confines of our heart where joy has run dry. Sometimes we need God Himself from whom these living waters flow to heal us, to nourish us. For we've been walking in the desert. The miracle might not manifest publicly or be a change in circumstance. The miracle we most often need happens inside of us. So what did Jesus communicate to His disciples when He saved the best wine for last? What was the significance? Jesus had many encounters with Pharisees and Sadducees, and in these arguments, He would say things like, I'm greater than the temple. Before Abraham was, I am. You see, none of these things compare to the joy that will only be experienced in and through Jesus. So friends, the world gives wine, doesn't it? I mean, that, that's what it's doing when it's promising you joy. Come take a cruise. Come, I don't know, I'm thinking of anything on a billboard. Isn't that what it is? Let me distract you from stuff. But the wine, the joy that Jesus gives will far surpass anything we've ever experienced in life. Even the good things. And He has promised to give us joy. He promises us. He says, these things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. I I choose to believe His words. Because we will experience the fullness of joy, 180 gallons of it, someday. 
filled to the brim. And this is the fight of faith, my friends. This is the fight of believing and holding out for the joy that only Jesus gives. So a pastor I greatly respect, Nick Jackson, no, I respect him too, Uh, John Piper said this in a conversation he had at Google. If you could give me a greater, longer lasting joy than what I have in Jesus, I'd cease to be a Christian. Can you say that? If you can give me a greater, longer lasting joy than what I have in Jesus, I'd cease to be a Christian. John took a pause after making this statement and then he finished. But you can't. It doesn't exist. So what happens when your joy runs dry? Friends, and inevitably it does. Inevitably it does. Our circumstances change. We lose our job. We lose our loved ones. The joy of our marriage wanes. We lose relationships. We lose our life. And like the bridegroom in the passage, we don't have the capital for endless joy. Our ability, our provision, no matter how much money we have, will run out. The earth does not contain the necessary capital to fill and maintain the caverns of joy that are in yours and my heart. And it's in these moments that we have to remind ourselves of the miracle. The sign we have in the cross that our eternal joy has been purchased. I know I'm pressing time. There's no clock. No wonder Nick preaches for eight. Oh, there it is. (laughs) All right. Got me. I want to say this. Because there may be two different types of people, maybe three different types of people here. Those who believe, those who know, and those who are holding out for the promise of eternal joy with God. And maybe, maybe you're walking in joy because God gives us goodness here on the earth too, doesn't he? Like, there are times when we walk in that joy. And friends, then there are times... Christians, there are times when we walk and we're depleted and it feels like we're drudging our steps, right? The message is the same to both. The eternal joy we have in heaven far exceeds anything we have or will ever experience here. We will be clean. We will be made new. You know what those people in India were yearning for? Joy. They want the joy of being made clean and they're trying to wash themselves in a dirty water. Friends, that is, that's, that's the sin of the 20th century, isn't it? We try, we try to find joy in things that it's just dirty water we're throwing on. And yet, whom do we have? We have Jesus, the Son of God, who is the fountain that cleanses and washes us and gives us true joy. So my exhortation to both believer who's walking in joy and believer who's struggling is pursue that joy. Believe in that joy. It's coming. That day is coming. And then there may be some of you here today who don't believe, who don't know that Jesus, who He is, and and that He has redeemed you. Or that He can redeem you. 
Maybe you're here and you haven't yet set your faith, a saving faith, in Jesus as the only one, not who will just wash you and save you from hell, but will actually cleanse you and give you a fullness of joy that you can't get anywhere else. That's the message of the gospel. It's not a get out of hell free card. It's a, I give you eternal joy and a wedding feast that will go on for eternity and you will be clean and you will be right and you will be pure and you will have face-to-face relationship with God. That is what Jesus accomplished on the cross. That is the glory that he revealed on the cross. All for one reason, to bring you into the wedding feast. This wedding feast points to the greater wedding feast where we will be with God for eternity. I was told to say a lot of words like amen and hallelujah. And actually, I'm a Baptocostal. Do you guys know what that is? It's a mix between, I grew up Pentecostal and I'm a Baptist pastor. I don't know how it works. But let me, let me say this. We will have joy unhinged, unhindered for all eternity in the presence of God. Amen? We will have joy in eternity in the presence of God forever. Amen? Amen. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Did it. Okay. So I, I just want to say this. Um, so what of our circumstance now? Sometimes he heals with a promise. Sometimes he heals with a promise. And sometimes there's a scar that remains. It leaves a scar. But the scar is proof that he's making all of us new. You and I are being renewed, transformed into the image of God. This is the promise of Scripture. Not that we're taken out of the world or out of trouble, but that he is with us through it. And here's the promise, friends. There is a river in the book of Revelation. It was so, I didn't know they were going to be next to the river. There is a river in the book of Revelation, which you guys went through, didn't you? You know about this river, don't you? It flows from what? It flows from the throne of God. And it's not a babbling brook, friends. It's this, i got to imagine, it is a deep, rich, full river, able to wash and heal and fill the heart of, and soul of every person. So we live in the sure hope of eternal joy. That this river will never run dry. And this is what we celebrate when we go to communion. That all our joy was purchased on the cross. That though sorrow may last for the night, joy comes in the morning. And one day when He returns, we will bask. We will bask in. We will drink in His glory. Our eternal joy as a people who have been made clean. Restored. This is the joy promised by Jesus. And so when we go to communion, as we, ushers, would you come forward? As we go to communion, remember you are cleansed by his blood. You're redeemed for a wedding feast. And you and I will be saved in his presence where there is fullness of joy for all eternity. Let me pray.